Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we have, I think, four more sermons, or three more sermons in the book of Mark, and then we'll be done with it. But Mark chapter 14, we're going to read, a, well, I'm going to read verses 42 to 52, though we are going to cover all the way to verse 72. So Mark 14, beginning in verse 42, I will read through 52 here, though we will preach all the way up to 72, and I'll read the rest during the sermon. This is on page 720. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under your chair, a brown one, page 720. You'll find Mark chapter 14 there. If you'll remember from a few weeks ago, uh, Jesus. this is Thursday night. Jesus had had his last supper with his disciples. He just prayed in the garden that the cup would be passed from him, and the Father said no. It's still Thursday night, and he's getting ready for his betrayal, eventually his arrest, and then Peter denying him three times. So we'll pick up the story here in Mark 14, verse 42. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob, with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given, had given them a signal. His, um, the one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, he went right up to him and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they took hold of him and arrested him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple complex. And you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Father, thank you for your word and for the chance to think about it today. The very reading of your word is an act of worship, for your word is holy. And you have spoken to us in the very reading of your word. We have sung your word, we have prayed your word, we have read your word, and now we want to meditate on your word and preach your word. And so, Father, we ask for wisdom that can only come from above, wisdom that we cannot muster up from our own inner person because we don't have the resources for it. So give us your wisdom. Lord, we could understand words and sentences and stories, but we can't have a spiritual awakening, a softening of the heart, a repentance for our sins, and a stronger faith in Christ if you do not come. And so we ask you to come now and help us because of what Christ has done for us. And so it's in his name we're asking for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have an outline there in front of you, you see the main idea is that your life, moment to moment, is determined by your recognition or rejection of Jesus as he has revealed himself. So your life, your destiny, where you will be in your life, where you will be in eternity is determined by your recognition or rejection of Jesus moment to moment, especially when you're in trials. Now, trials are not only for Christians, trials are for humans, because we live in a cursed world. So everyone faces trials, everyone faces tribulation, everyone faces difficulty. And yet, 
how you respond to those difficulties, and whether you recognize Jesus in those difficulties really shows whether you're really trusting Jesus for your eternity or not. You either recognize Jesus in the midst of trouble, or you reject him in the midst of trouble. And we have pictures of that here in this passage before us. And so to get this idea, to unpack this main idea, we have three main points this morning. Number one, there are your notes, is draw courage from the Messiah, or you will cower in fear. Okay, if you're taking notes, that's the blank right there. Draw courage from the Messiah, or you will cower in fear. I just read to you the story, this section of the story. This is verses 42 to 52. I'll summarize it for you here. So Jesus was praying with his disciples, or his disciples were sleeping, and he asked for the cup to be passed from him. He tells them to wake up after praying three times. The betrayer is here. Like I told you last week, if, if it's in the middle of the night, you can see the torches coming across the Kidron Valley as Jesus is praying in the garden. It's one, two in the morning. And so you see them coming. You see the mob coming. Jesus is waking up his disciples. He's coming. They're coming. The betrayer's here. And so they get there while he was still waking them up. Judas arrives. The, the, the um, nine, is it? The, yeah, the, no, the eight. Eight disciples were at the, probably at the entrance of the garden. The three came further in with Jesus, and Jesus was there. Now he's waking all of them up, and now Judas is here with a mob. Judas gave them a sign. The one I kiss is going to be the one to uh, is, is going to be the one who Jesus is. That's the one you're to arrest. Remember, Jesus made an arrange or Judas made an arrangement for thirty pieces of silver that he would betray Jesus. But in the in the dark of night, it's hard to recognize who people are with no streetlights. Not only that, there's no internet. There's no smartphones. You don't have pictures posted up everywhere. There's no photography. So even recognizing who Jesus is for the Roman authorities and temple police to know who Jesus is in the middle of the night, that's a difficult task. So Judas would have to get up close, give him the normal greeting, which is a kiss. A kiss is a, is a, is a greeting of a friend to greet him. And then once they realize who Jesus is, that's the one they're going to rest. And so he kisses Jesus. He identifies Jesus. They immediately apprehend Jesus and arrest Jesus. Peter, it says in John, we have his name, Peter. It says here, one of the disciples, takes out a sword, which is really the word for a smaller sword, maybe like a dagger. It's not used for, for precise you know, sword fighting. It's actually more for thrusting and just killing someone. He takes out this dagger and cuts off um, Malchus's ear. That's a, a, a servant of, of one of the priests or the high priest. He cuts off his ear, and uh, not from this story, but from other Matthew, Matthew, Luke, and John, we learn that Jesus heals the man and puts the ear back on. Just so you know, Peter is not a, a marksman with the sword. He wasn't aiming at the ear as a warning shot, you know, like, watch out. You know, it wasn't a warning shot. It wasn't precise. He probably was trying to kill the man and just was so bad with the sword that he, um, you know, just missed and, and hit his ear. Jesus heals, heals the man, and then he tells him, why, 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 why did you guys come out with swords and clubs? Am I a criminal? But scripture must be fulfilled. That's why you came. And then uh, they arrest him. The other 11 disciples run away. And then apparently this young man who's naked also runs away in verses 51 and 52. So from this section of the story, we need to learn that we can draw courage from Jesus the Messiah... If you don't draw courage from Jesus the Messiah, you'll cower in fear. And you see here in this place, there are three ways to respond to a trial, at least in this first point. You could either be self-centered and cowardly. 
You can have self-centered cowardice. You can have mistaken courage. Or you can have God-given confidence. Okay? You can have self-centered cowardice, mistaken courage, or God-given confidence. Now, who is a self-centered coward here? Who's the one who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Judas. Here's the coward. He's hiding. He's betraying Jesus. He's sleazy. He's sneaking around backdoor deals. He's kissing Jesus as though he were his friend. When he's really betraying him unto death. This is cowardly. And this is self-centered. Why did Judas do it? For what? For 30 pieces of silver. He wanted to get out with something. He didn't care about God's glory. He didn't care about the kingdom anymore because it wasn't the type of kingdom that would put him at the center, at least his own imaginary center. And so he was done with Jesus. He was trying to get out with as much as he could, which is 30 pieces of silver, which is not a little bit of money. would be several thousand dollars today. And so he weasels his way around like a coward, not taking risks in following Jesus because he was seeking really his own kingdom. So you could, you could respond to trials with self-centered cowardice. Not looking out for God's glory. Not looking out for the good of others, the salvation of others. Not looking out for the edification of those around you and the evangelizing of the lost. You can be in your trial and really be thinking just about yourself and your kingdom, which is what Judas did. And not only Judas. Look at verse 50. Who else deserted Jesus and ran away? In verse 50. All of them, right? They all deserted Jesus and ran away. All, all 12 disciples in the end desert Jesus and run away in cowardice. Now, probably for different reasons, but they were cowardly as well. But So that's the first picture, self-centered cowardice. There's another picture here of responding to trials, which is Peter with the dagger. When he cuts off the ear, we have here a picture of mistaken courage. Is Peter courageous? I mean, it takes courage, boldness, right? To grab a dagger and try to cut someone's head off. That takes some courage to some degree. It takes some boldness. And Peter here had courage. But it was mistaken courage. Jesus had told them just before they left the upper room to come over here, don't put, he said, put away your swords. Jesus said, they're going to arrest me, they're going to beat me, and they all start taking up their swords. And Jesus said, put away your swords. Jesus was never about going to war, holy war, or taking the kingdom by force with killing people. Jesus understood that you don't bring in the kingdom, at least not initially, through force of killing others, but through letting force happen to you by receiving force and dying for others. And so Peter had courage, but it was a mistaken courage. Do you remember when Pilate was interviewing Jesus and he said, are you really a king? Where's your, where's your soldiers? Here you're arrested, you, you look so weak. Are you really a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my people would be fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so Peter had courage, but it was mistaken because he wasn't listening to what Jesus told him about what the kingdom was, about Jesus' prophecy, about putting away your sword. And so we can be bold for Jesus and be mistaken. Boldness and courage, apart from Scripture, is folly. It's folly. You could brag about your courage. Remember, Peter said, I'm not going to deny you. And here he's showing some pretty strong boldness. He must have thought, Jesus said, I'm going to deny him. I told him I'm not going to deny him. I'm going to show him right here. And so he cuts off the man's ear. And then when Jesus heals the man and says, I'm not, I'm not here for this, Peter turns from mistaken courage to cowardice and fear and just runs away with the rest. So that's the second response you could have is mistaken courage. A third response you could have is Jesus' response. Now, Jesus is not mistakenly courageous. He's not self-centered and cowardly. Jesus is confident. 
He has God-given confidence. Now, why is Jesus confident? Look at verse 48. Imagine all this commotion going on. Even John tells us in John 18, he says several times, Who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. Who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. I am he. He keeps telling them who he is. It's like he's going to the front of the battle because he doesn't want the other disciples to get arrested or in trouble. Actually, John tells us he does that so that none of them will be lost. So that they would not abandon the faith. He's actually protecting them. This is how confident Jesus is. In his arrest, he's caring about his disciples again, and he's making sure that he's the only one who's arrested. But look at verse 48. But Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple complex, and you did not arrest me. What is he showing you with that? Why are you arresting me at night? Why are you arresting me in secret? Something is fishy here, right? I mean, if I really was a criminal, and I'm there in public every day teaching in front of thousands of people, and if I was a threat, why didn't you arrest me there? Why this secrecy in the garden in the middle of the night? Clearly something is wrong with those who have sent you. He's kind of shooting his arrow across the bow, you know, to to show them, to show the people that he is innocent here and that he is being mistreated. But he doesn't say that to get out of it. Look at his next sentence. But the scriptures must be what? Fulfilled. This is an amazing contrast. Just moments ago, Jesus was cowering and trembling in fear. Right? Remember that? From Mark 14, verse 34, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. In verse 33, He was deeply distressed and horrified. It was the the scariest Jesus has ever been in His whole life. The scaredest He's ever been. And now he just turns from complete fear to God-given confidence, complete confidence. In the face of the cup and in the heat of the trial, he moves forward in the strength that the Father gave him through prayer and through the Scripture. He knew the Scripture had to be fulfilled. He was supposed to die, right? He was supposed to be arrested. He was supposed to rise again. But it wasn't just the prophecy of him dying and rising. It was also the prophecy of the fact that he would be arrested and mistreated as someone unjustly arrested. So for him to say, why are you arresting me in the middle of the night, as opposed to in broad daylight? So that the scriptures must be fulfilled. That I would not only be arrested and killed, but I would, do, I would be arrested and killed, even though I am completely innocent. Amen. He's fulfilling scripture, and he's so confident that he takes the time there to rebuke everyone there about how wrong this is. The Lamb of God is still the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will not be intimidated by anyone. And we are, the disciples were, to draw courage from this. What Peter and the others should have seen was, why is he so calm? Right? If he's calm, maybe I need to chill out a little bit and not get so scared. They should have drawn, they should have drew confidence from Jesus. Instead, they run out in fear. The disciples were supposed to do that. Even one follower was so fickle, as to leave Jesus there and run away naked. I mean, that's how bad he wanted to get away. Is he had like a, some sort of blanket on. They're trying to arrest him, and there's a little bit of commotion. They grab, they grab his blanket or whatever he's, whatever's covering him there, this cloth wrapped around him, this linen cloth in verse 51. And he so badly wants to get out of there, instead of being courageous, that he, he lets them take the linen cloth, and he runs away naked. Now, you might have questions about who that is or what that's doing there. The easy answer is, I don't know. Right? I mean, I don't know who he is. This is all we have on it. And why it's there, I have an idea at the end I might come back to if we have time. 
but um, at least part of the idea there. But the point here is that that he lacked courage as well. He preferred to run away even naked than to be confidently standing there with Jesus. Now, why were the why were the disciples failing here? Why did they fail? Didn't they say earlier in verse thirty one? If I have to die you with, I will never deny you. This is on verse 31, same chapter. And now they're running away cowardly and in fear. What happened? They had misplaced confidence. Instead of trusting in Christ, where, what were they trusting in? They were trusting in their own sincerity and their own spirituality. Do you ever do that in your life? God, I really love you. I'm not going to fail you. Trusting in your own sincerity, is a, it's a small slide from trusting in Christ to trusting in yourself. You don't say, I'm trusting in myself, but you say, I know I trust Jesus. I know I really do love him. And so we trust our own heart and our sincerity rather, and our own spirituality rather than trusting Jesus himself. You know the song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand? I dare not trust the sweetest what? Frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You know what sweetest frame is there? It's the sweetest frame of spirit. You know those times where you're closest to God, where you feel his pleasure and you know that you're just really close to God and you feel His joy and you're overflowing with joy, those are the sweetest frames of your life. And that song is saying that even in my sweetest frame of love for God and faith and sincerity, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. But here, the disciples were trusting their own sincerity, their own spirituality. So they overestimate that. They overestimate themselves and they underestimate Jesus' warning and they underestimate Satan and they underestimate indwelling sin in their own lives. And so in the end, what do we learn for ourselves? We learn that we can be close to Jesus and listen to Him regularly without actually believing His words in trial. What trials do are, you know why we call it trial? Because you're on trial. You're being tested, right? In trials, your faith is tested. It's a trial. And in this trial, we learn that you can be close to Jesus, you can know the Bible, you can follow Jesus for three years and still fail the test. You can still fall into sin. Judas, Peter, the other ten were all guilty of listening to Jesus, but not really listening to Jesus. So what does that mean for us as Christians? It means, number one, we need, well, for Christians, we need to look at the confidence of Christ when we're in our trials. Do you ever feel like the world's falling apart all around you? Like the ground's crumbling everywhere around you, and it, under you it's shaking. One of the things I love to do, and what we're trying to do here is, what, like the disciples felt right there, right? Jesus is being arrested. Everything is crumbling right before him. All they had to do was look at who? Look at Jesus. Cool, calm, collected, confident. And that's what happens in our lives. When you are in trial, look up at the throne of God. And guess what's happening around the throne? You have angels flying around, screaming, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You're saying, full of glory? My world is falling apart. Not in heaven. Everything here is going according to plan. Amen. And we can be calm and collected and confident, not from our own strength, not from our own wisdom, but from the fact that God is in control. And, and so we look at Christ in the midst of our trials. Jesus has been there where we are. He knows that God is good and he promises to see us through. We must not cower in our trials. If you're not a Christian, here's my question for you. Non-Christian friend, thank you for coming this morning. My question for you is, what are you scared of? You don't have to answer that out loud, but what are you scared of? And then think about this. Can you really conquer your fears? 
My bet is that you really don't find peace except by ignoring your fears. But that doesn't last, right? There's times where you put your, your head on your pillow at night and you can't escape the fears of reality. Death is coming. The world is not in your control. That's scary. Most humans are intuitively optimistic, but most humans are blindly optimistic. They don't really have a good reason to be optimistic. So if you're not a Christian, I just wonder, are you just going to keep ignoring your fears and hope that it goes away? Because in the end of the, at the end of the day, it doesn't. Your only hope really is to look to God Amen. and to look to Jesus. For our church family, what does this mean for us as a church family? It means we need to help others follow Jesus. Just like the disciples need to help here, we need to help each other follow Jesus. Understand that trials are difficult, and so let's be intentional to give people Jesus through our words and our presence. Brothers and sisters, when we are in trial, you know, what, you know why it's good to be a member of a church? There's a lot of reasons. You know one of the reasons it's good to be a member of the church? is because other members of the church are responsible for your discipleship. That means when you're cowering in fear, you should have other Christians from your church family strengthening you, Right? Encouraging you, praying for you, being with you. So I challenge you, brothers and sisters, as a church family, to bear each other's burdens and, and be with each other in the trial. Let me challenge you another way, church family. On the other side, the flip side is this. Don't wait for people to find out your trials. Tell them you need prayer. Tell them you need help. Don't, don't think, there's no, there's no glory or reward in, in the facade of strength. When you're really feeling weak inside. There's no, there's no glory in that. Just share your burdens. That's what we're here for. Okay, that's number one. Is that we need to draw courage from the Messiah. And number two, we need to recognize the Messiah or you'll reject him. That's number two. Recognize the Messiah or you'll reject him. So, reading verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest. Look at verse 53. And all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes convened. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the temple police, warming himself by the fire. That's going to be important when, G when Peter denies Jesus in the next point. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they could find none. For many were giving false testimony against him, but the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and were giving false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will demolish the sanctuary made by human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. So here he is. Jesus is in trial. First he's tried at Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law, probably in the same house, another room. Sanhedrin's getting together in another room. Jesus is transferred from one trial, that's in John 18, to this second trial under Caiaphas. They're blaming Jesus. He's going to destroy the temple. He's going to raise it. They're giving all these false witnesses and false testimonies, and they are contradicting each other. Then, verse 60, the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are saying against you? What was Jesus' response in verse 61? But he kept what? Silent and did not answer anything. Wow. Think about that. All these false witnesses, all of this force of people, this conspiracy going on with all these testimonies, and Jesus says what? Nothing. Why? Well, partly he knows he has to die. But two, isn't it interesting that when you let people keep talking, they actually just end up defeating themselves? Right? I mean, when you're wrong, you just keep talking, you end up defeating yourself. That's why the Proverbs says, in a multi 
multitude of words, there's sin. Right? You just keep talking, and there's going to be sin because we have to be self-controlled with our mouth. Here, they keep talking, and they want to, they want to wrongly arrest Jesus and, and um, execute him, condemn him. And so they have all these testimonies, and Jesus just has to stay silent. And it's clear, it's clear who's in the wrong. He doesn't have to say anything. It says in Isaiah 53, 7, like a sheep led to slaughter, he was silent before his shearers. But then, Jesus does speak, because look at verse 61, I didn't finish it. The high priest questioned him again. So the first question is, do you have anything to say about any of this testimony? Nope, nothing to say. Clearly, they're contradicting themselves. Then, he says, he asks a specific question. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God, or the Son of the Blessed One? Now, that's a yes or no question, right? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus answered, I am, said Jesus. And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I am the Messiah. And I'm going to come with clouds of power. And you're going to see it. Verse 63. Then the high priest tore his robes, which is a sign of grief and mourning over blasphemy. Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all what? What's their decision? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple police also took him and beat him. So here you have Jesus under trial. It was completely rigged, and the conclusion was already determined before the trial began, wasn't it? I mean, didn't they want to condemn Jesus? Was it a real trial of where we're saying, let's find out the evidence. Let's weigh it carefully. Let's hear both sides. Let's consider everything. And then let's come to a just and fair uh, verdict. Is that how it happened? No. no. It was completely rigged. They clearly wanted to kill Jesus. So here's the, here's the thing I want to point out to you. Here's what I want to encourage you with is consider, consider who Jesus is from your, already, from your point of conclusion. That's a weird way of saying it. Here's my point. When you think about Jesus, guess what? You already have a conclusion about him. Just like the chief priest did here, Whenever you share the gospel with a non-Christian, guess what? They already have a conclusion about Jesus. And so do you. And before you became a Christian, you had a conclusion about Jesus. Everyone thinks about Jesus, Jesus from their already concluded point. That's how it is. They already wanted to condemn him. This was already the second trial. He was just in Annas's, He was just before Annas, and now he's before Caiaphas. And you need to realize that you also judge and conclude from your current point of conclusion. Here's what I'm saying, basically. We all have preconceived notions from which we test things, right? Whenever you test anything, if it's true or false, you have to test it by what you already know. But here's the question. But is what you already know, has that been tested? Right? You have to test whether Jesus is the Messiah or not by what you already know. But has what you already know been tested? So you need to think about Jesus realizing that you have preconceived notions and your preconceived notions are also under trial. So we need to consider Jesus' claim. And if you're going to recognize the Messiah, you need to understand verse 62. So we're going to spend at least five minutes here on one verse, verse 62, okay? So look at verse 62 with me. We need to think through this carefully together. Here's Jesus' answer. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? By the way, Messiah is the King, Son of David, the military leader who's going to bring Israel back. He says, I am, and all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying he's the Messiah. He is the Christ. 
But it's not the Christ that they thought of because here he is under trial. But Jesus here quotes two verses from the Old Testament, and I'm going to take you to them, or at least if you take notes, you can follow it later. But let me, let me say something about both. He says, all of you will see the Son of Man where? Where will the Son of Man be in verse 62? Right. Seated at the what? Right. right hand of God. And that is straight from Psalm 110. Okay? This is Psalm 110, verse 1. It was quoted earlier by Jesus. This is David, where David writes in Psalm 110, verse 1, This is the declaration of the Lord, of Yahweh, my Lord, Yahweh to my Lord. Or the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, David is saying, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So in Psalm 110, David's Lord, David's son, the Messiah, will sit at whose right hand? At God's right hand, and God will make the Messiah's enemies his what? His footstool. If you continue on in Psalm 110, you find out in verse 2 that God is going to extend the scepter of this Messiah to reign over his enemies. In verse 3, the Messiah will have his people battle for him. Battle for him, fight for him. In verses 5 through 8, it says that um, the kings, the nations, and all the leaders of the earth will be put under this Messiah. So here's Jesus arrested, right, handcuffed and saying, I am the Messiah, and God will put all my enemies, all the nations, all the judges, all the princes of the earth under my foot, in my footstool, and my people will fight for me. That's what he's quoting, Psalm 110, that I am the Messiah whom God is going to give the rule over the whole world. Yet here he is with his arms presumably behind his back or right here, and he's chained up saying, I'm the king of the world. Psalm 110. But it's not just Psalm 110 that he's quoting. He calls himself the son of what? Calls himself the what? The son of? Son of man. And he's coming with the clouds of? Heaven. So keep your finger here in Mark. I need you to go back to Daniel chapter 7. Turn your Bible back to the left, to Daniel chapter 7. And I want to spend at least uh, three or four, three minutes here on this point because this is just very interesting. It really helps us get a good picture of Jesus from the Old Testament. Daniel seven. If you don't, if you can't find it, that's okay. You could just listen, but it's better if you turn there. Daniel chapter seven, verses thirteen and fourteen. It says this: I continued watching. Daniel says in night visions, and I saw one like a son of who? Son of man coming with what? With the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And what was he given? He was given the authority to what? To rule and glory and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. So, what is the Son of Man going to receive? In verse fourteen, what? Authority, kingdom, glory, dominion, rule over who? Over the nations, right? And who's going to receive this? The Son of Man. So here's my question to you. Who is the Son of Man? Say that one more time. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus. Okay. Now, when you read Daniel 7, whenever you read apocalyptic visions like this or Revelation, usually you get the vision... And then you get the interpretation. So verses 1 through 14 is the vision. Verses 15 and 28 is the interpretation. So let me just tell, let me tell you, let me summarize the vision for you. So just look up here for a second. Then we'll look back down at Daniel 7. Here's what the vision was in verses 1 through 14 of Daniel 7. 
you have four beasts, enemies of God, representing nations. Four beasts arising from the sea, one after the other. And then the Ancient of Days, who's that? God. God is the Ancient of Days. You have the Ancient of Days on His throne in verses 9 and 10. And then in verses 11 and 12, you have the last beast, the fourth beast, being judged under judgment. And then finally in verses 13 and 14, you have the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, receiving an eternal rule over the whole earth. Okay? So you got four beasts. You have God on His throne. You have the judgment on the fourth beast. And then you have the Son of Man receiving the kingdom and rule over everything. Okay? That's the vision. So what is the interpretation? Verses 15 to 28. Here's my question. Who receives the kingdom? Who received the kingdom in verse 14 and 13? The Son of Man, right? Now read verses, look, look at verse 18. Here's the inter- interpretation. Who receives the kingdom in verse 18? But the holy ones, the saints of the Most High, will receive the what? Kingdom, kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Go to verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of who? The saints or the holy ones of the Most High, for, ta- for the time and had come, and the holy ones or the saints took possession of the kingdom. kingdom. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all, all of heaven will be given to who? Given to the people, the saints, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the rulers will serve and obey Him. So who's the kingdom given to? In the interpretation, to the what? The saints, the people. And guess what? When you read 15 through 28, not one time is it given to an individual. It's given to the people. So in the vision, the kingdom is given to the Son of Man. In the interpretation, the kingdom is given to the saints. Strange, right? You scratch your head and you're like, wait. So is the Son of Man the people? Or is the Son of Man an individual? And the answer is, well, sort of both. But the Son of Man, here's, I'll give you the answer. The, son, the answer is that... Um, if God's people receive the kingdom, well, the question is, if God's people receive the kingdom, how can an individual receive it in the vision? And the answer is that the Son of Man is the corporate head and representative who sums up the people in himself. Amen. So when the Son of Man receives it, guess who receives it? All of his people. He's the representative. Just like David and Goliath. Remember when David and Goliath fought, what, what the deal was? Whoever wins this battle, who wins? The whole army wins and the rest become slaves. So if David wins, who wins? Israel. And if Goliath wins, then the Philistines win. He's the corporate head of Israel in that battle. Or think of Noah. Who found favor in God's sight when the flood was about to come? Was it Noah and his sons or just Noah? Just Noah. But who got saved? Noah and his sons. When Adam fell into sin, was Adam the only one who fell into sin and became a sinner and was cursed? Or was all of humanity? All of humanity. We're all under the corporate head, headship and representative or representation of our head. And so when Adam falls, we fall. When Noah has favor, his sons have favor. When David wins, the nation wins. And when the Son of Man receives authority, who receives authority and the kingdom? His people do, the saints do. And so here we have Jesus fulfilling Scripture of becoming the Son of Man, or being the Son of Man, who will receive the kingdom on behalf of His people. So in other words, here is Jesus in trial saying, I'm coming with the clouds of heaven, and when I get this kingdom, who else is getting this kingdom? My people will be getting this kingdom. And so, there they are. Go back to De- uh, jo- um, Mark chapter 7. 
Uh, Mark chapter 14. There they are, right there with Jesus on trial. And he's saying, I am the one who's going to have all rule. I am the one who's going to be given the kingdom. And my people will receive the kingdom with me, those who are in me. So the Son of Man knows he must reign. He's going to be given authority. But how does he get authority? Through what? What does he have to do to get the authority? Die. Die. By dying on a cross, right? Mark 10.45. For the Son of Man, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life as a ransom for many. How is the Son of Man going to be the Son of Man or show himself as the Son of Man? By dying and giving his, a lot, giving his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the way Jesus is going to secure this rule and authority is by dying for sinners. And this is the gospel. That Jesus will give the kingdom to sinners. That God would not curse us to hell but actually save us, that we would reign for Him, Revelation 22, verse 5, that we will reign with Christ forever and ever. When we deserve to be crushed in hell forever and ever. If you're not a Christian, please listen to this. This is the most important minute you'll hear this morning. The good news of the Bible is this, that God made us, and we're accountable to Him and responsible to Him for our sins. We have to answer to God for how, we, how we've lived our lives. And to be honest, we haven't lived up to par. We haven't lived in a way that will save us from judgment. We all deserve to be condemned to hell for our sins. That's the bad news. But it's the truth. But here's the good news. That God loved us. That He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God gave His Son Jesus, the Son of Man. He sent Him into the world to live the perfect life we should have lived, and then He is going to come to reign, to receive the authority in the kingdom. But first, to receive that authority and kingdom, He has to become a ransom and die for many. So here's the gospel, the good news, that Jesus dies on the cross for sinners who deserve His judgment, so that when He dies and rises, and they unite to Him by faith, they receive the kingdom that He receives. They receive eternal life when they deserve eternal death. And so, if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, His life, His death, and His resurrection for you, you will be saved this morning. And God promises you a kingdom. Not where you're the King of kings and Lord of lords, only one gets that, that's Jesus. But we still reign with Him as co, as vice regents, so to speak, vice presidents, vice kings in the new heavens and the new earth. So, you only have two options, really. If this is Jesus, I'm going to be Lord of all, you only have, well, C.S. Lewis very famously asks, he says you have three options. Jesus is either Lord of all, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. Right? The three L's. He's a lunatic because he really thinks he's the king of the world, and he's not. Or he's a liar, he knows he's not the king of the world, but he's tricking everyone. Or he's actually telling the truth, and he is what? He's Lord. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. So, what do you think? Is he Lord? If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you. Us Christians, you hear them saying Lord because Christians believe that. But God is calling you to recognize Jesus as Lord of your life. Not just in general so you go to church on Sundays. Lord of your life on Monday and Tuesday and in all of your relationships and in all of your budget and all of the time you spend. He is Lord over all or he's not Lord and you reject him. You can't have a middle ground here. Now if this is true that he's Lord and he is, there are six ironies in this text. Jesus is tried but he's really the judge. Right? Here he is on trial, but he's the judge. Jesus, Jesus is accused of breaking the law, but who's really breaking the law here? All those who are trying him. They try to get key witnesses to condemn Jesus, 
But Jesus is the key witness. They mock Jesus as a pretend prophet. They beat him and say, prophesy, who hit me? But Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus is charged with blasphemy by the high priest. But really, who's the one blaspheming here? The high priest is, right? To denounce and then start beating Jesus, who is the Son of Man, with all authority? That's blasphemy. You can examine Jesus, but your response to him now and in this li- now in this life is the test, is your test, and you're actually the one under examination. So if you're not a Christian, I plead with you to trust in Jesus. For our church family, what does this mean for us? It means that we need to use the Bible over our slogans to clarify and keep clarifying the picture of who Jesus is. Have you ever thought about Daniel 7 before? We just read about Daniel 7 tonight, or today. Isn't it good to get an Old Testament picture of Jesus? You know, as, as the, the one who receives the kingdom and we're receiving it with him? I challenge you, brothers and sisters, as you, if Jesus is the love of your life, and if he's Lord of your life, then spend your life reading the Bible and getting to know him. Amen. Don't be content with Christian slogans about who Jesus is. Read your Bible and think clearly and carefully about the beauties of Jesus. Christian friend, is Jesus reigning? Is he the reigning son of man in your heart and your mind when you're in temptation and trial? Any of you undergoing a temptation or trial right now? Is he clearly the reigning son of man when your kids are irritating you? Speaking from my own heart here. It's not to fault my kids, it's my own heart here. When I'm feeling irritable, is Jesus Lord of my life in that moment? Am I recognizing him as the reigning son of man? Or when a church member sins against you, is Jesus reigning in your life in that moment when a church member sins against you? Or will Jesus be when you're on your deathbed in the hospital? Will he be the reigning king of your life there? We are not meant to primarily recognize Jesus here at our church gatherings. We are meant to strengthen our recognition of Jesus as Lord here, so that in our trials we will gladly acknowledge his lordship in the most dire of circumstances and most enticing of temptations. Recognize Jesus, not just here, but in your trials and in your temptations. And number three, which leads us lastly to Peter. So number one was um, draw courage. Draw courage from the Messiah or you'll cower in fear. Number two was recognize the Messiah or you'll reject him. And number three is identify with the Messiah or you'll embrace instability. In, in, uh, identify with the Messiah or you'll embrace instability. Look at verse 66. While Peter was in the courtyard, below one of the high priest's servants came, verse 67, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were, were, that Nazarene, were with that Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. I don't, know, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and guess what? A rooster crowed. When the servant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you are also a Galilean. Then he started to what? Verse 71. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I don't know this man you're talking about. What does it mean he, he cursed himself? My guess here, it's not really clear, but my guess here is something along the lines of him saying, I swear to God, I don't know him. And if, if, if I'm lying, may God judge me. May God condemn me if I'm lying. Now he knows he's what? He knows he's lying and he's basically cursing himself. May God condemn me if, I, if I'm lying. I don't know the man. Wow. 
I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man you're talking about. Verse 72, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. Actually, wait, before that. Oh yeah, a rooster crowed a second time. And let me read to you Luke twenty two sixty one. Just let me quote it for you. As soon as Peter denies Jesus that third time, this is what the verse says. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. They made eye contact. So here's Jesus in trial, indoors, with perhaps a window. You could see him in trial. 20 yards away, 30 yards away. You could see Jesus in trial. You deny him, I swear to God, may God kill me if I know this man. I don't know this man. Rooster crows, he looks, and he makes eye contact with Jesus. Wow. It says in verse 72, he remembered when Jesus had spoken that word to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. When he thought about it, he began to what? To weep, weep bitterly. Wow. Well, what we learn from here is that we need to identify with the Messiah. Did Peter identify with the Messiah here? No. So he embraced instability. When you don't have Jesus as the one you're identifying with, you're going to identify with other things and you're going to be unstable. Or as James likes to put it, you're like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. A double-minded man is what? Unstable, unstable in all his ways. Here's Peter being double-minded. I want to be identifying with Jesus, but at the same time, there's this risk. If I identify with Jesus, there's temple police right here. They arrested him. They're going to arrest me, perhaps. And so he's being double-minded. And so um, from this, we learn that we need to beware of... Here's what I put in my notes. Beware of the boogeyman. Beware of the boogeyman. And what I mean by that is... Now, Peter is with the temple police, and he's cowering before this girl and this crowd. But here's the point. is when you... When you don't fear God supremely, you fear other people and other things. Or let me use Ed Welch's title of his book. When people are big and God is small. In other words, when people are big, at that same moment that someone is so big that you're scared of them, God is not big. God is what? Small. He can't be big. If God is big, then everyone else is what? Small. You can't have a big fear of the temple police and a big fear of God at the same time. One has to shrink. One has to shrink. And when God is small, you're scared of the boogeyman. Because everyone else is big now, right? You can be scared of your family members. You can be scared of your neighbors. You can be scared of the coming presidential election. You can be scared of the nations. You can be scared of ISIS. You can be scared of friends and family. You can be scared of everything and everyone when you don't fear God. But when God is big, everyone and everything else is small. And you could have courage. Peter didn't get that. God was so small in his mind in that moment. And is God ever really small? No. no. God is never small. But in our minds, we belittle him. And in that, we sin against God. And so, beware of the boogeyman. Fear God so you don't fear people. You know, the only way you're really going to love your neighbors and love each other here is by not being scared of each other. When we're not scared of each other, we can tell the truth to each other because we love each other and we fear who? God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. wisdom. And when you don't fear God and you fear other people, you're not growing in wisdom, you're growing in folly. You need to fear God. Fear God and you'll fear no one else. And you can actually love the people rather than fear them. So shame here leads to the curse. Now, Peter curses himself here, or it leads to him cursing himself. You, do you ever get like Peter? Can you sympathize with Peter here? 
Have you ever sinned once and then twice and you just thought, you know what, forget it, I already gave in, I might as well what? Might as well go all the way, right? I mean, I already sinned for the day, I already sinned for the hour, I might as well just go all out, I'm sinning against God. And then we start to reason, we use a little bit of a biblical truth, we mix it with a lot of error, and we say, well, one sin is the same as many sins, or every sin is the same size, so if I'm just, you know, um, maybe lusting after this woman, maybe sleeping with her, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing, first of all. But second of all, you can see how distorted our reasoning gets. You sin once, you sin twice, and then you just, the floodgates feel like they're opening up, and you're just like, might as well. And that's what Peter does here. When you keep going, you keep disregarding God, and you keep growing in rebellion, your sin actually becomes high-handed, reckless, and audacious. Man, I... You know it says that we're going to answer for all of our works in heaven? I'm sure all of you could think this. I shudder in fear of some of the things I've done that that are going to be known. Right? I mean, just thinking about your whole life, you know, from childhood all the way up to adulthood, and the things that you've done that no one knows about. It's it's amazing how audacious we can get when we're in sin. And we just think, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. Well, Peter ends up weeping and feeling guilty, and he's convicted. But you know what? We're not going to stop here. In this story, we're going to go on to the end of Peter's story. This conviction turns to confidence. Peter's convicted of sin, but later he's what? Restored, right? Isn't he forgiven? This is a great sin against God. And yet, though he felt guilt, though he was convicted, though, yes, he sinned, eventually Peter would find cleansing and forgiveness from God's kindness. Because Jesus was there to die for his sins and rise from the dead. And Jesus is there to die for your sins too. Which is why we can identify with him. Because he died for us. We don't have to say, well, I might as well not identify with him anymore. I already messed up. My, my track record is too, too checkered. Well, no. It is checkered. But Christ died for everyone with checkered pasts, right? Amen. And so Peter finds cleansing and forgiveness. And you can too. If you're not a Christian, understand this about Christians. Christians sin too. Right? Right, Christians? Yes. We're guilty of hypocrisy too. The center of Christianity is not be a good person and and show yourself squeaky clean. The center of Christianity is that we find forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Hypocrisy has a cure. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so we identify with Him. Don't we? Aren't we supposed to? We identify with Him. Church family, we need to encourage each other with grace in our failure and camaraderie in our combat. We're going to fight sin in our lives, right? We're going to fight temptation. Are we going to fail sometimes? Yes. When we fail, we as a church family need to not look down on each other. We need to help each other get back up, right? Encouraging each other to repent and be restored to Jesus again and again must characterize our church and our lives if we are to truly identify with Jesus in our trials before God. When we say, as a member of this church, you are taking responsibility for one another's discipleship, we're not, taking your, we're not saying you're taking responsibility to make each other perfect and squeaky clean. We're saying that we're taking responsibility to help each other follow Jesus and keep repenting and trusting Christ again and again and again for the rest of our lives. And in doing that, we'll be growing and transforming. So we need to identify with Jesus. This, this naked man, let me close with this naked man. Let's go back to this naked guy who's running away. This is uh, Tim Keller brings up this reading from, from N.T. Wright. Tim Keller, um, he talks about, well, N.T. Wright. He quotes N.T. Wright in his little commentary on Mark, where he talks about this man fleeing 
from the garden, naked. Does this remind you of anything? Someone fleeing from the garden, naked? Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, left the garden. Well, as soon as they ate the fruit, they realized they were what? They were naked and they left in their shame. And they failed the test in the Garden of Eden. This man is representative of us. He's representative of all the disciples who all, and I'm, he's a real historical person, but I'm saying even in this, the concept of it is that he represents us that in our trials we end up abandoning Jesus and running away. We don't recognize Jesus in our trials. We actually reject Jesus in our trials and we run away and we fail the test in the garden again and again and again in our lives. But in this story, there's also a man in the garden who doesn't fail the test. He stands there with quiet confidence. And he lets all hell break loose against him. And he doesn't move. He doesn't shudder. He doesn't cower. He stands there and is ready to drink the cup. Jesus is the one who draws courage from God in the garden during the arrest. He knew scripture had to be fulfilled. He's the one who truly recognizes God and doesn't reject God in the middle of trials. Even to the point of drinking the cup. If Judas recognized who Jesus was, do you think he would have betrayed Jesus? If he recognized him as the Son of Man... Would he have betrayed Jesus? No. Do you think Peter would have denied him? No. And the disciples wouldn't have abandoned him. And the chief priests and the scribes would not have arrested him, beat him, mocked him, tried him, and crucified him. But they didn't recognize Jesus for who he actually was. The man who is the Son of Man standing in the garden, succeeding where we fail, to give us the power to have courage, to give us the power to recognize Him, and to give us the power to identify with Him in the midst of our hottest trials and our most enticing temptations. So what about you? Will you, moment by moment, in trial, in conflict, and in temptation, will you recognize and stand with Jesus in faith and in repentance and in obedience? Or will you reject Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the Son of Man, and we recognize him as the Messiah, the Son of Man, fully God, fully man, coming with the clouds in power, seated at your right hand, Lord of lords and King of kings, just like we sung. We crown him our King. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd cleanse us for not identifying with you. Forgive us for our fear. Forgive us for making you small in our minds and making everyone and everything else big in our minds that causes us to live with fear rather than in faith. We pray that you would help us to recognize Jesus, not just this morning, but in our trials, in difficult conversations, in difficult health situations, in difficult interactions with non-Christians and Christians, in the way we spend our money, and the way we use our time, may we in every moment, moment by moment, recognize Jesus as Lord of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.